Welcome to the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast, the show focused on the strategic disruption of the status quo in technical organizations, communities, and events. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Hashtag Call to Scene podcast. My guest today, and a lot of you have been recommending her book to me. I had it on my shelf. I saw it somewhere, and I don't even know where I saw it, but I immediately went to Amazon and bought it like months ago and I'll put things on my shelf. So when the time comes for me to read them, they're there. And this is an author that um, has been on my shelf for a while and welcome to um, the show, the author of technically wrong, Sarah, please introduce yourself. Hey everyone. My name is Sarah Walker Betcher and yes, I am the author of a book called technically wrong sexist apps, biased algorithms and other threats of toxic tech, which probably says a lot about the things I care about right there in the subtitle. Um, and I am a consultant working mostly in uh, content strategy, user experience and product strategy. And I've been doing that for a lot of years. And over the years, I started noticing all of these ways that I felt like the tech industry just wasn't doing enough to understand the consequences of its work and that designers were not necessarily thinking about the people that they were including or excluding in their products and that we all needed to pay a lot more attention to the biases and assumptions that we have. And that led me down this path where I went from mostly working with clients on kind of more general UXE questions to really digging into tech culture and how that culture has created this place where we're at right now. Okay. So before we talk about where this, this place that we're at right now, cause we can go, we're going to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, my first questions are always, why is it important to cause a scene and how are you causing a scene? Well, you know, why is it important to cause a scene? I mean, look around. If you think things are going great uh, in our country or in this world like right now, then maybe you don't think it's important to cause a scene. But odds are you're not listening to this podcast. Like, it's important to cause a scene because we are dealing with all of the history of systemic equality or excuse me history of systemic inequality and oppression in this country and it's kind of culminating in what i would call a crisis moment and in technology specifically we are not absolved of any of that we are we are making the tools that people are using um you know everywhere from within an organization like ice to a company like facebook that uh was you know (laughs) doing all kinds of unethical things with data that uh, led to a lot of misinformation over the last election. I mean, like everywhere we turn, technology is so deeply embedded with these major problems and major ethical concerns. And so if we're not talking about it, it's definitely never going to get better. Um, What am I doing to cause a scene? You know, some days I feel like I'm not doing nearly enough. Some days I'm, I'm tired from all the things that I am doing. So um, what I really focus on is obviously writing and speaking about these issues. So, you know, writing a book like Technically Wrong or the, the book I wrote before that called Design for Real Life, which was getting at sort of a piece of this issue. Um, and then going and talking to people who work in the field and kind of saying, look, these are things you might not have been trained to think about. These are things that you may not perceive as being your job. But the fact that we have not done this has this sort of abdication of responsibility has created some real harms for people. And we need to get honest about that. And then we need to figure out how we're going to do better. Um, I will say a couple of years ago when I started giving talks with that kind of message, probably in around oh, 2015, I had conferences that were like scared to have me or they were like, oh, can't you just talk about like UX stuff? <laughs> and I was like, this, this is UX stuff. Like this is, mm-hmm. this is actually really important. And then what's actually happened over the past couple of years is that suddenly there's so much more like mainstream interest in talking about this stuff and sort of um, starting at least to dig into it that I'm starting to get a lot more people who are like, can you come talk to our audience about this? And it's really, really encouraging in some ways to know that so many people who are working in the tech industry uh, want to do a better job and want to 
learn about this topic. And then at the same time, it's like, it's such a large topic that it feels like it's something we're going to be working on for forever. Yeah. 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 Okay. So when I, I just getting into chapter two, you hit on so many things um, that I, that I speak about. And, and I want to bring that these things up as some guiding thoughts. Um, I talk about one of the issues when we talk about the challenges or the assumptions or the, not even assumptions, it's the, the ego <laughs> of technologists is <clears throat> how we define the word and attach the word technical to certain jobs. Um, and those that are, that, that the industry considers or that people consider non-technical or less than. And so one of the thing talks that I do is, um, I don't do non-technical talks because we're using the, the term technical incorrectly. If we look at the dictionary, what people who, who are, when you have a certain skill that's technical, where regardless of what it is, and we need to use, when we're talking about people working on um, software or hardware, they are working with technology. And so if you're talking about the skills that you and I have, and we're talking about um, how do we talk about bias and, 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 and inclusion and all these other things, those are, are different sets of technical skills. Um, and when I have that conversation, it helps people shift their minds because I've often been, it's the, you go to a conference, oh, I don't want to see that that non-technical talk or that soft skills. And I'm like, if you are not aware of that, we live in a, in no longer are in an industrial economy where we're making widgets. It's people who have those quote unquote soft skills in an information technology, uh, information economy that are driving innovation and differentiation. So we, one of the things I talk about is, and you, you speak about this. So one of the, you talk about the pipeline and you talk about uh, another thing I talk about, why are all women making gains in tech? Cause wh- white women are making gains when everybody else isn't. And then you talk about culture fit and all of those things. Um, when you're, when you mentioned, we're just at the beginning of this, they've been entrenched so long that we're going to have so many long-term effects of those assumptions and biases and, and ego driven things that it is daunting for many of us who are working on these things, but we have to start somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things that you really touched on there that I I think is sort of a, a, like first thing people need to get their minds around is not conflating working on tech products or kind of like making technology stuff for, for people to use as being the same as engineering. Um, engineering is a piece of that, but you know, one of the things that's been such a frustration to me is the way that, um, that is treated as sort of the end all be all of tech. Like all, everybody who matters in tech is doing engineering. And the reality is that engineering is great. Um, you know, my, my husband happens to be a software engineer. Uh, many of my favorite people are software engineers, but software engineering by itself is very unlikely to create good tech products and very unlikely to to solve the challenges we're facing now. And one of the things that's been so undervalued in that, um, in that model, like you mentioned soft skills, which obviously like even calling them soft skills is oftentimes used to to denigrate them. But, but also um, thinking about things like actually having expertise in the subject matter that we are dabbling with. Like we're so focused on things like we're going to disrupt this industry or Mm -hmm. that industry Mm -hmm. without ever thinking like, huh, shouldn't we bring anybody in who knows? Yes, yes, this? yes. You know? Yeah, and I, I, you wouldn't see that any other. I mean, I don't think you would, you would, in medicine, you just wouldn't, I don't think, just start doing stuff without going to experts and saying, hey, how do we do this? And this happens so much when I'm talking about, because I don't talk about inclusion and diversity from a moral, political. To me, it's about money. It's about, it's about building a, a, a business because you cannot create products or services for a global market from one or two perspectives. It just doesn't happen. And so when you have, you look up and you see that everybody at the table looks exactly like you and you start going out throwing these, what you consider initiatives out there that are supposed to attract and then they backfire. 
There's a reason for that because you don't know what you're doing. There are reasons there are experts. It doesn't mean that what you're doing, what you're an ex- you are an expert in is invalidated. You're just not an expert in this. Exactly. So for example, um, have you ever uh, talked with Safia Noble? She is uh, a professor. She's an academic and she wrote a book called Algorithms of Oppression. No. And I don't have that on my shelf either. Okay. Yeah. So I bet, I bet you'd be interested in that. And I bet that a lot of your listeners would too. But one of the things I, you know, I talked with her when I was working on the book and one of the things that we talked a lot about was also that, you know, on the, yes, absolutely. We need more diverse teams working on these products, but we also need to be thinking about, um, the diversity of sort of the backgrounds that they come from and sort of what they're trained in and thinking about, you know, for example, if you're going to build something like, um, technology for financial services that's going to be using information based off of something like, you know, um, where people live, like zip code, if that is included in, in a profile that is then used to target or exclude people from whether or not they can get certain types of financial services. Um, if you are trying to build some product that includes those kinds of features and nobody on the team is an expert in, let's say, uh, the history of how (laughs) financial services have been included and excluded for audiences in this country. Like if you're, if you have nobody on the team who really understands what redlining was and Mm -hmm. how it happened, for example, Mm -hmm. what Mm -hmm. the hell are you doing? Yes. You have the expertise to do this. And so what you end up seeing is all these people who have no idea, basically they're playing with fire, have no idea that they're playing with fire. You got that move fast, break things mentality. That's even, you know, even if that is no longer like an official slogan at Facebook, that is still so deeply embedded. Yeah, exactly. And you're not thinking like, oh, what you might be breaking is really important, right? Like you could be recreating and reinforcing all of these like historical systemic biases. Exactly. And, and, it, and you never think about it. Yeah. And it goes, so, so when you look at um, the Cambridge Analytica and, and the researcher who initially got, gathered that data, when you talk about um, the Facebook thing, and he was like, well, I, I'm one of a thousand people who are doing it. And we just didn't think anybody would care um, that their data, or we just assumed that they would know. And I'm thinking, what? In what space does some grandmother who's in some city whose family has moved across the country and the only way she gets to see her grandkids is through Facebook. Is she having this conversation about her data being given out? Well, and not only that, but in that particular example, they were also scraping data from your friends who exactly. weren't even using the app. I mean, they never consented to any of this. Yes. I mean, exactly. I think... I think one of the things, you know, you, you see this and something um, I've been, you know, watching pretty carefully and pretty frustrated by is like over and over again, you see a company like Facebook make these statements where it's like every scandal, they could basically issue the same statement because they're not saying anything yes. different. Every yes. time it's like, yes. <laughs> oh, we didn't anticipate that happening. <laughs> Whoops. Yes. Over and over again. And it's like, yeah, okay, but you could have anticipated it and you chose not to. And you then at what not point to invest resources in anticipating this? And then at what point are you held accountable for not anticipating? Because ignorance is not uh if I run okay, so January um July first in Georgia, there is a hands-free um um law now. You cannot have your phone in your hand if you're driving, period stop sign street. It does not matter. You cannot have that phone in your hand. A cop pulls me over. They do not want to hear. I did not anticipate that. That's Mm -hmm. something. There's something I, there's a rule. There's a, um, there's something I should have done on my part because they're not going to care that I didn't know about that. So at some point it becomes, and, and, and this pops in my head is about the risk management. Who's on these teams that are experts at risk management? It's like, is no one thinking about any of the cons of the things that we're doing? I mean, honestly, I, I know that that's part of the problem. And at least historically, that has been part of the problem. Because, you know, when we talk about innovation or whatever buzzwords we're using in this industry, <laughs> we, we tend to focus very much on positive outcomes. We are biased toward positive outcomes. And that because we tend to talk about things like, how are we going to change the world? And so we tend to focus on what the desired future is going to be. We also tend to focus on things like um, 
delight, like in the design industry, that has been a word that has made me want to puke for several years. <laughs> um, and so when you start focusing on how are we going to delight users? How are we going to engage users? How are we going to optimize this, right? All of those are focused toward this sense of like a positive outcome for the business or for people. And all of that, like the more that you focus on one thing, the harder it is to see anything else. And so if you're not explicitly sitting down as part of your practice, every single time you do something in tech and thinking, what's the worst that could happen? Who could this hurt? Who does this leave out? What are the potential unintended consequences? What happens if I'm wrong about the assumptions I've made going into this? Like if you don't have that built into your process, then you will make these mistakes and you will make them over and over again. And it just, it just popped up in my head because that sounds so much like privilege. And if you have one person from a marginalized community on any of these teams that could say, hey, they tried this, it blew up in their faces, another company did this, or the government experimented on people, there are bad things that could happen. Um, it's like certain people live in this world where everything is just rosy and they've never had any challenges or been challenged. So they don't even think about that anything that they could do could be negative. So they don't even think about the risk assessments. And I'm going to tell you, for, for a Black person in the South, we have to do personal risk assessments every single day. Yeah. It's just a part of how we have to manage our lives, in, in particular in the United States, and there are other places, but I can only speak to the United States. And when you have these companies run by mainly white men, um, Asian men, and white women who've never had to have those kind of conversations internally with their families, with their communities. It is a huge blind spot. Absolutely. And I think the one thing I would add to that is that um, sometimes you hear from folks that they, they'll get that, they'll kind of understand that problem that you've just described, but they'll look at the solution as like going back to the pipeline, right? So it's like, oh, well, we need more people in the pipeline so we can have more people in these companies. And we can talk about the problems with the whole pipeline metaphor, but <laughs> what that manifests as oftentimes is also really, I think, unfair to your most marginalized staff because what you end up with is then, let's say, a junior black woman, only one on the team, and then everybody sort of relies on her oh, yes. to be able to anticipate everything or, or like they expect that just magically having her there is going to solve problems when they don't actually, you know, listen yes, to her, exactly. trust her, respect exactly. her. And so it's like, it's not enough to just be able to say, we've brought some diversity onto this team. It's also a matter of saying like, well, do those people feel safe? Do yes. they still have power to speak? Yes. You yes. know, and, and are, are you actually bringing them in because you want that perspective or are you trying to basically make a Band-Aid solution? Yeah, or is it the next but marketing or PR buzzword? And that's why I was, right. I was never impressed. I mean, last year, 2017 was the year of the diversity, C-level diversity person. And I was like, if these people don't have the autonomy to have a budget to make decisions without having to go to somebody else or all these other things, they're just figureheads and it means absolutely nothing. Because one of the things that when we, because you talk about in the book about culture fit, it is no longer acceptable to expect individuals to assimilate to your culture. When you bring anybody in, in, your culture should be shifting to include them. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I had this, so I had this conversation actually just recently um, on my podcast, it's called Know You Go. And um, it, in that, I was talking with Nicole Sanchez, who runs Via Consulting, yes, um, okay. Consulting, right? And one of the things she said was like, you know, don't tell me what your priorities are. Show me your budget and I'll tell you what your priorities yep, are. Yep, exactly. If you're not willing to put money to it, then you're telling me you don't care that yes, much. Yes, yes. And, oh, that, no, no, no. That's just, that is right there. Is, that's why I talk about this from a business perspective, because when you talk about this from morals or whatever, they will talk around it all day long. But when I talk about it from, let, show me the data. Show, I can show you data that says your return on investment is improved when you have diverse perspectives in all areas of your company. And it's not just about race and gender. It's about bringing in people with disabilities. It's about people with all different kinds of experiences. And if you can't say that I, we put this much, much dollars on that line item, then you, this is not important to you. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the, one of the other things that 
I talked about with Nicole that I thought was so was so valuable was her perspective on sort of what the the kind of surface level um, diversity inclusion work looks like versus what the real work looks like. Mm -hmm, And and mm -hmm. so, for example, you know, she mentioned um, that she was brought in, hired by by a company to provide consulting and advising on where bias might have crept into their hiring process. And so this is a company that on its face, you know, they really, they, they clearly value diversity and inclusion work. They're willing to pay her to do it. Um, they're talking about it. They want to make their, their process less biased. But when she went in and looked at the process, the first thing that happened was somebody said, oh, well, this guy went to Harvard and worked at Facebook. So obviously he's a yes. And she's like, well, wait a second. Like if that's, if that's your shortcut, if you already, if that's all you want to hire, why are we doing any of this? Like, why, you know? And so I think, and it really speaks to the way that people haven't quite understood that that's a, that's a culture fit thing, right? It's like, oh, went to Harvard, worked at Facebook. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to saying like, well, what, no, what, what does this person actually bring to us that's different than what we have that adds to what we have? And why do we assume that somebody with that background is obviously better than somebody else? Um, you know, I think that, 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 that really gets at that deeper piece that, that is much harder than just saying like setting some hiring targets and oh, doing yes. some, you know, some good, you know, <laughs> some good PR around it. My thing is inclusion is not about equality. First of all, it is not about equality. There's no way in hell uh, the average black female is ever going to catch up to a white male. And, and, and so it's not about equality and it's not about quotas. Uh, it's not about uh, because when it's about quotas, then you go out and get uh, a, uh, a lesbian Hispanic with a disability um, and then you check all the boxes. No, it's not about the quota thing because I, I, we've seen that happen. It's about looking at your first again to me it goes back to we need to stop hiring as if people are making widgets people are you are um able to compete in the information age by turning information into knowledge that you can use for your competitive advantage and i'm sorry the average engineer does not have that skill set and so it it becomes okay this person the engineer is able to build this thing what teams can we put together so that we're all, all of these different things are, are, are equal or they're, they, they, they meet at the same place. So the engineer is supported by, by this and the engineer then supports this thing. And it becomes, again, that changes the entire culture where the engineer is not the, the highest person on the totem pole. They're a part of a team and the whole team moves things together. And, and, and that was where I wanted to go with, when we're now talking about, you know, we're talking about sexist apps, you, you know, you say um, biased algorithms. When you have those, these, we're not going to get rid of that, but your chances of creating something unintentionally are lessened when you do that. Yeah. And I think, you know, I talk to a lot of folks who talk about things like needing to have more ethics built into computer science curriculum. Right. And I, and I agree with that. I think that's great. I think engineers should absolutely have more understanding of ethics and consequences of what they're building and should be more in tune with that. But I also think that it is unrealistic to expect all of that to come back to them. Right. Like, I think that that's a big piece of it is that because we have put engineering on sort of, um, on a, on a, uh, a bit of a throne in our industry, mm-hmm. we are also expecting that that's, that, that those people are going to know all of the things. And the reality is that they don't. And exactly. so we really do need, uh, you know, diverse sets of people working on this stuff with, with different types of skill sets because we are not, yeah, we're not making widgets. We're not just building technology. We are fundamentally changing the way that people live their lives and do their jobs. And we are affecting, you know, everything from, um, their emotional and personal well-being, to their safety, to their financial future, to their jobs. I mean, we are messing with some stuff that is crucial to the functioning of our society. And so to reduce all of that to, to an engineering problem is just an immediate, um, an immediate source of harm. Yeah. And, 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 and you just spoke to it. This is the first time that one Thing, and I mean, when I speak, when I say that, I mean, technology has touched everything in such a way that everything is affected before it was this business. If that, I'm trying to make sure I'm, I'm trying to articulate what I'm trying to say. 
technology is now this web that touches everything. In the past, your medical was separate. Your tra transportation was separate. Your everything was in these silos. And so if something happened on one end, it did not affect the whole system. Now, technology's ability to affect the entire system is something we've never had to deal with. We now need to be asking questions we've never had to answer. Um, and we cannot do that if they're the people who, first of all, we have to be willing to answer this, those questions. We have to be willing to get uncomfortable and say, you know what, we don't know what the hell we're doing, but that doesn't absolve us from, from, from now trying to figure out the best way to do this. And, uh, and oftentimes asking if we should be doing it at all. And yeah. That's oh one of the God. questions that yeah. doesn't come up nearly yeah. enough. One of the things, uh, I'm so happy you brought that up because, so Elon Musk, okay. So I'm, I'm really, really coming to a place where, and this again is about how this society has, has, this system has put privilege as the, the pinnacle of what everybody should strive for. So these individuals or people are really, really admired as business people. I was like, Ooh, I really, if I could get that. But then I recognized I never get that because I was never included in the game that they're playing. They never consider me. So I need, that's not even the game that I'm playing. But when I look at Elon Musk and I see the, 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 the innovation and the, the creativity he has. And then again, I look on the other side, it's like, yeah, he's been, but he's been, he's a part of apartheid. He's a sister, he's a, a product of apartheid, which is very much like slavery that just, just recently ended. So he had a lot of benefits that many people, even white people didn't have. But then I look at, when you talk about why create this, okay, the flamethrower that he just, he just did. And, and, the, and the advertisements I've seen, uh, I've seen of it are, you know, these white people who are, you know, playing and they have this flamethrower. But again, because I'm a black person, I immediately see that if a young black person had that in their hand, that would be a totally different outcome for them. If, if anyone was injured or any police officials at all were to interact with that. Yeah, absolutely. And it becomes... Those things that we think are innocent because of our perspective, viewed from the perspectives of others, are not so much so. And these are the questions that when people talk about, oh, uh, this is another thing. We've taught, because of our arrogance as technology, we've taught the wider community that we never make mistakes and machines are perfect. And so that's one of the reasons I think a lot of people don't question and they're so surprised when something like Cambridge Analytica or ISIS or whatever happens because they think we've told them that everything is binary, that's right or wrong, and that we as technologists know what we're doing. And, when we, and, and especially when we encode it into a machine, that machine is perfect. And people don't understand how algorithms are, are created and how programs are written and all the biases that are in that. And I think that's one of the main reasons that the larger public is not as alarmed as they should be. Because when I talk to people who I would consider that are, who still see technology as a toy rather than a tool, when I bring these things up to them, they have these like blank stares. They're like, I didn't even think of that, I, I, what? And I think it's hard to expect individuals to all kind of understand this and to really grasp it because it, it feels very big. It can be very overwhelming. Yes. And I have a lot mm -hmm. of empathy for, for people who are like, I don't really understand. And they do, they want to trust the software and yes. they want to trust the software because we get, we've trained them to trust yes, the software. Yes, exactly. Told them that that's the right answer. Yes. I really think, I think that getting the public more aware and more engaged with these issues is important. I think it's important because um, when people are educated about it, I think that matters. And when people are able to critique and to push back and to say no, I think that matters. However, I also really think that that we need to be dealing with this at a systemic level. Like this is not this is not a personal problem. This is a systemic yes, problem. Yes. So mm -hmm. if we want to deal with it at a systemic level, that means we need to be thinking about what are the kinds of regulations that we should have? What should we be doing to ensure that companies can't do this? You know, for example, we talk about Facebook, we talk about Cambridge Analytica, et cetera. A lot of the problems at Facebook stem from the fact that they have essentially 
optimized for maximum advertising revenue. Mm-hmm. And they've achieved it. They've made a shit ton of money yeah. off of, of yeah. ads, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think it was $40 billion last year. It was $27 billion the year before that. I mean, it's like a shit ton of money and it is mm-hmm. growing. Mm-hmm. And that is, in fact, what they are supposed to do according to their shareholders, right? Like yes. they, they are responsible for maximizing the value for shareholders by any means they can effectively. And so in that system, despite them maybe feeling real bad about things, they're not actually incentivized to act differently because nobody's making them and they have this huge pressure to maximize those returns. Everyone in the hashtag call to scene community shares the same common beliefs based on a set of four specific guiding principles. One, tech is not neutral, nor is it apolitical. Two, Intention without strategy is chaos. Three, lack of inclusion is a risk and increasingly a crisis management issue. And lastly, but most importantly, four, we must prioritize the most vulnerable. To find out more about the guiding principles and adding them to your Twitter profile banner, please visit hashtag. So what are you going to do about that? Well, the only thing you can really do, the only way you can really make them change is they have to feel like they have to change. Mm -hmm. Either, you know, it's either about are people going to be so fed up that they're leaving Facebook that then, you know, like they can't actually make the revenue by doing the unethical thing. Um, Maybe that'll happen. But so far that that has not really been realistic enough. People rely on Facebook so much. Exactly. So you have to start looking, you know, at the other side. So how do we, how do we regulate a company like Facebook and, and what kinds of regulations would protect people and probably limit how much Facebook can make off of the backs of people's data? And it's so, I'm glad you, and you just bring up all these issues because that's another thing I talk about. And, and this is where I had some challenges with the last election when people don't understand how a business is, a public business is run. They are beholden to shareholder value only. That's it. I mean, that is their, their job is to increase shareholder value. And when they do things that are, are not in alignment with that, or, or if they're, God forbid, is in direct opposition to that, they can be sued as officers and, 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 and um, executives by those shareholders of those companies. So people need to understand that that is the nature of those public businesses. Uh, and then it becomes a question of, as you said, how do you regulate it? But then when you look at um, the, 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 the Senate hearings, the, 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 uh, the um, politicians have no idea what this stuff is either. So they're not even asking questions that would um, probe deeper into um, that thing to me was the easiest thing that Mark Zuckerberg could have sat on because it was just, those were just like basic questions. They didn't ask anything about the real nature of the fact that you're selling people's data without their without their permission and and how did all this fake news happen and i love the, this whole thing about fake news as if this is the first time this has ever happened we've always had fake news we've always had propaganda the difference though is the scale that technology allows it to happen and and i think also the the amount of trust we've put into yes. algorithms to mm-hmm. make decisions for us yes. and to assume that they're going to get it right. I mean, that was one of the things that was really interesting to me when I was doing research for the book was how immediately when, you know, I mean, I don't know um, if you remember this story, but what had happened is in 2016, in the spring of 2016, um, an article came out that basically accused Facebook's trending news team of having a liberal bias. Mm-hmm. And there was all of this uproar about it. And, you know, there were conservatives in Congress who were demanding that there would be an investigation. And shortly after that, Facebook ended up firing all of those people who did their trending news. Um, so these had been contractors. They weren't Facebook staff. They were contractors literally working in the basement in the New York office. Most of them were, um, you know, like, people in their 20s who had studied journalism or some kind of media thing. It was like they're trying to get their foot in the door in a media job. And so they were doing these kind of editorial functions of making sure what showed up in trending was um, 
like a good source, right? So if there are multiple stories about a certain topic, they would kind of like curate which source would be used when they would make sure that only real stuff was making it in there. Um, And so as soon as they were fired, they fired them and replaced them with the algorithm only. So basically just the algorithm would decide what showed up in trending. Mm -hmm. And it was literally within days that the trending news feed started boosting all of these fake articles Mm -hmm. immediately. And though that was a direct correlation to the things that ended up being shared the most because the stuff that's in trending ends up being popular in people's feed people click on it and then exactly. they, share it exactly. and they share it and they share it and and it all happened like that and the assumption was that the machines were good enough to just take over, even mm-hmm. though they had done very little testing of them. The people who had been working on that team, that, that news team, were not involved with any of those product decisions, were explicitly not part of it at all. They were not in the room. They were not uh, discussing any of this with the engineers. When they saw the algorithm was starting to be more involved in their work, they were not able to give it any feedback. And so this goes back to what you were saying about having diverse people in the room, people with different perspectives. I mean, there was this assumption that the engineering team could just kind of handle it and it would be fine. And the reality is not only was it not fine, like not only did it do a bad job, like a demonstrably bad job, but it did it at a scale in a moment in which it was incredibly dangerous. Yes. Was that the Microsoft thing that that turned into races overnight? (laughs) Yeah, you know, and that one really goes back to um, what we were talking about before, focusing so often on positive outcomes. So Microsoft had this bot named Tay. This was, I think, 2015. Microsoft created this bot on Twitter named Tay. And Tay was meant to socialize with teens on Twitter to try to learn more about how teens speak. Within 24 hours, trolls had trained Tay to say a lot of racist and sexist stuff. And not only that, but they had trained Tay to then go out and attack other people. So they took Tay and trained her, this bot, to attack, for example, Zoe Quinn, who is at the center of Gamergate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when the Microsoft researchers actually wrote about this after the fact, this is another thing I I was researching a while back, I was, you know, I, I looked at like, what are these people who worked on this stuff that went horribly wrong? What did they say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as I read about what they said had gone wrong, um, one of the things I noticed was that they talked about how they had specifically been focusing on making Tay a positive experience. Like that was, that was almost verbatim the quote that they had. And again, I think we come back to, okay, yeah, when you focus on making interacting with Tay a positive experience, how many ways that it could go wrong, how many ways that it could be abused are you ignoring? So they basically had underinvested, and I think this is very common, they had underinvested in looking at the potential ways it could go wrong, looking at the harm that it could cause, and preventing that from happening because they had overinvested yeah. in mm-hmm. looking at the positive side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and it's not like we don't have evidence of this. So we just spoke about two of them and how quickly it went from zero to 100. Um, and, and that's, that's the thing that, the the conversations we need to be having because there is this, again, these assumptions that there is no bias in these things, that these things can't be trained or forget being trained that they're not even created. It's, it's they're in their creation stage. They're without bias and there is no such thing when humans are involved. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly, you know, we talk about things like algorithms or AI as if it's so hard to understand because it does get complicated, but also because I think technologists make it, make it seem hard to understand. The reality is what a lot of these systems are doing is they're crunching through a bunch of historical data and then using that to make sense of what they think will happen in the future. So for example, like image recognition, right? We are going to look at a ton of images that already exist And from looking at all those images, we can learn about the world and we can learn what the things in the images are. So I look at thousands of pictures of cats and now I understand what cats look like and I can identify a cat in a future picture, right? So that kind of algorithmic decision-making to be able to like tag a photo as a cat or a photo of a bicycle as a bicycle, well, all it takes is to train the system without having an... uh, an accurate amount of diversity in the images that you're using, right? Like if all you show the system are pictures 
of things from America, then it's going to have a really hard time identifying stuff from other cultures. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If all you show the system are pictures of white people, it's going to have a hard time identifying pictures of people of color, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's not hard to see the limitations of a system like that. You, it all is about what you put into it because it's, it's not going to be able to do a good job with the stuff that it doesn't have any experience with. So there's bias in terms of the, the selection, the curation of what we're we're telling these systems to learn from. And then there's, of course, all, all kinds of bias in terms of um, what we, what kinds of outcomes we're seeking, what we think of as being a good outcome. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and and that reminds me of Watson when, when they trained Watson to do Jeopardy. That's all that was. It was just a whole bunch of looking at historical, um, how people played before. Um, and that's what they fed Watson. It wasn't like Watson got up and decided they was going to do it th- th- themselves. It was programmers, engineers feeding it information that it learned and was able to, at, at the, the end point, beat the champions on Jeopardy. Yeah, I think it's interesting because that kind of stuff is what makes people think that like machine intelligence is somehow going to overtake human or whatever. Like people get a lot of, I think, mistaken ideas about what a system like that can do. Yes. And it's mm-hmm. like, what, what a system like that can do is be really good at Jeopardy. But actually, you know, if you take that same person that it's playing in Jeopardy and that ultimately beats in Jeopardy and you compare Watson and that person against a whole bunch of other types of metrics. Exactly. It can't do it, right? Because it can only do the one thing. um, And it's only doing it based off of all this historical knowledge. So if you suddenly put it in terms of like, okay, well, then let's ask Watson to do a different kind of trivia game. It's not going to perform, right? Exactly. Learn from this one narrow historical thing. Yeah. And it's interesting that we also, when we do that, we don't think about the bias that is in the historical data that we're feeding it. So when you're looking at um, criminal or crime statistics, crime statistics should just be um, based on actual crimes. But what we have are policing statistics that make, try to make assumptions based on what people say. And then when you program that, and you talk about, we go back to like redlining and all, and now you're talking about financial and now you're talking about real estate and all these other things in there. Mm-hmm. There's so much there that is just discriminatory to a whole bunch of other people, but these computers are not equipped to discern. That's not what they're, that's a good word. That's what, they don't have the, the, the ability to discern. No, they don't. I mean, and that's the thing, like, but we attribute that to them. We, well, the average person attributes a comp- that thing to a computer. They don't understand what goes in is what comes out. And I think that, um, that the way that, that it's not just that it's, you know, it's not, it's not just to say like, oh, the algorithm is biased. What it, what's really more helpful, I think, is to say that the data that we used to feed the algorithm was biased. Yes. <laughs> we are biased. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the results are biased. Exactly. The algorithm itself is just performing a series of steps. Exactly. It's doing what now, the algorithm does. <laughs> now, it might be those, the steps that it's performing may be good or bad, that, but that's, that's kind of a different issue than talking about the bias of the data. Yeah. And, you know, Kathy O'Neill talks about this a lot um, about how we, we look at proxy data so often, right? It's like most algorithms, the fact is you don't know exactly how crime is going to function. And so you're trying to make a predictive model for how mm-hmm. crime might function in a city. And so in order to make any kind of predictive model, you have to take unknowns and then try to like make yourself certain enough that you can, you think something's going to happen. Right. So you use proxy data. You say, well, I don't know when crime is committed, but I know when people are arrested. So we can look at arrest data. Mm-hmm. I know where cops are being called. We can, we can look at 911 phone calls. Mm-hmm. So you take the data points that you have. And so you have to be able to sit down and say, okay, what is the data that I, I want to have? Like, what do I wish I knew? Well, I wish I knew when crimes were actually being committed. Okay, mm-hmm. I don't know that. Here are the potential things I do know. And then you have to sit down and say, okay, what are the problems with that? What are the assumptions of that, right? Yes, yes. And and so, like, we just saw recently, I don't know if you saw this, it was just the other day, BuzzFeed did this um, report on a neighborhood, I believe it was in Harlem. It was an area that, that's been pretty rapidly gentrifying. 
Um, and they talked about how there is this like massive spike in people calling the cops in this neighborhood. And it turns out it was directly correlated to changing demographics where now white people live in this neighborhood that's been historically, um, I believe it was a very, very uh, Latinx neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And um, suddenly you've got all these white people calling the cops on mm-hmm. people doing things like sitting on their stoop, mm-hmm. playing dominoes. <laughs> and, and it's like, if you just looked at the data, you would think suddenly, oh my yes. gosh, this is a high crime area. Yes. But the reality is the crime in the area hasn't changed at all, but the demographics yeah. have changed and who and thinks the, they can call the police yes. has changed. And the reasons for calling the police have changed. Um, exactly. Yeah. 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 Because there is a different perspective. Cause so, uh, in our communities, somebody sitting on their porch and okay, we wave and keep going. Um, man, and- speaking of which, like as a, <laughs> as a white woman, let me just, can I, can I speak yes, to all yes. the white people out please, there? Please, if, please, please stop please. fucking calling the cops. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank I mean, you. Like, so, I am so over white women right now. I'm, and, and yes, fair. Very I fair. Am so over white women right now. I, I mean, to a point where my message used to be um, specifically for underrepresented and marginalized. I just dropped the underrepresented because that's usually just white women. Because I, you are, white women are causing harm to marginalized individuals and they're causing harm at rates that are just unprecedented at this point. And it might not even be that it's unprecedented. It's just the fact that now we have cameras to catch it. Um, and it is really blowing my mind. White women's tears, all of that is just, and is just, I, I, I can't even fathom. And I've been having these conversations that people of color, and I'm going to say this, people of color are now now consider white women a bigger threat than white women. I mean, white men. That's interesting. And that doesn't surprise me in a certain way. I think it's, um, I don't know. I, I guess, you know, uh, like being a white woman and trying to be a better white woman. Um, one of the things that I have really been able to recognize is how much, how many messages you get, like how you, how you learn as a white woman that effectively like systems are in place to protect you. Mm-hmm. And that can be really screwed up and paternalistic and, and frustrating, right? Because a lot of the ways the systems are set up to protect you um, are, are ways in which like white women are ultimately oppressed, right? That protects yeah, it limits, it limits, it limits your abilities. But because the system is set up to protect white women and to keep white women comfortable, um, it's, we, we so easily benefit from yes. it. And we, it's so easy for a white woman to use that against other groups. And, and we do, right? Like, I mean, that's the, we are, we are very much trained to believe, um, that, we deserve to be taken care of by systems. And, mm-hmm. you know, so if we're uncomfortable in a setting um, that we might call the police, I personally um, I have, I, you know, I would say like a few years ago, I don't think I had thought about this nearly enough. I wasn't a big police caller ever, um, but I was probably more likely to call the police than I am right now. And at this point, I, I think, I, I need to think a lot about my responsibility. Like if I was going to call the police, um, what is the responsibility that I have to make sure that um, I have a, a good enough reason to call the police and that I'm not calling the police uh, as sort of a first resort to protect my own comfort, that there are real safety issues at hand. And also that I'm thinking about who might be harmed by me making that phone call. And yes. like, I have to think about that. That is my job. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I guess, I guess the biggest thing I'm thinking is just that like, so much of this is, is white people need to get a lot more comfortable having unpleasant conversations that they're not good at having. We've spent a long time not talking about mm-hmm. any of this, not mm-hmm. feeling like had to mm-hmm. and like we're gonna be bad at it like I am oh, not gonna exactly. do a good job yeah. at it unless I unless I practice right like yeah. I, can't, I can't do a good job um having conversations with people of color if if I don't invest in learning how to do that well and invest in in building those skills and like that is on us yeah, and it's, it's and it's not even as it's as extreme as calling 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 the police. And this is the thing that you know white women are like, oh, it's the, no, it's it's every time 
you're in a situation, particularly with a woman of color, and you don't get your way, it becomes tears, she's being aggressive, she's intimidating, and that is, has been historically affecting us economically. Because what you do is you run to HR and that goes into our HR records. And how am I going to ever get promoted if that is what my, what has been reported against me? And these are the things that white women need to understand. And it's about taking responsibility for your own emotional maturity. If I have not done, if all I'm doing is disagreeing with you, then there is nothing, um, that you should be crying about, screaming about, any of those things about, because you know what? I'm feeling, I'm feeling you're a, a bit being intimidated by you as well. But because, as you said, the system is set up to protect white women. Um, it is, it is um, your word against ours. And then I look at when, they t- when we talk about feminists, why aren't black people in feminist? Because feminist, feminist movements, women's movements have never, white women's movements, it never included us anyway. So we're not going to waste our time on those causes. When you talk about suffrage, we were intentionally left out of the women's uh, right to vote. We were intentionally left out of things um, in the 60s with feminism and, and women's rights movement. And what has come of that, though, is... When women, yes, white women are making gains in tech and in these spaces, but your circumstances aren't changing. You're not, you're not improving. So they're bringing you in, but you're, not, you're, you're still being harassed. You're still being treated like shit because we didn't all get there together. Because had some of us gotten there with you, we as a group can say, no, we're not taking this. Mm-mm, this is not working. And also we have a different perspective of it so we can have a different conversation. Yeah, I mean it's it's not enough to it's not enough to say, well, okay, we're going to we're going to include this group that used to be excluded as long as they are willing to act just like all of the dudes that are already there, right? Yep. So white women can show up and be successful if they're willing to basically reenact the same shit that has already been. Yes. <laughs> and and somehow that's supposed to be a win and it's like that's who exactly is, is, is that a win for? Yeah. Um, and, and I, I absolutely agree. It, it, it's, it's, it's not enough. And I, and I completely understand And I, you know, I think that it's, um, I, I completely understand the sentiment that I have heard from, from a few different places around like, you know, when you say, um, feminist or when you say, let's say a women's in tech event, women in tech event, um, that what, People of color often hear is that that is for white women. I I hear that and I I believe that I believe that one hundred percent. I wish I had, um, you know, I wish I felt clearer on like exactly how to fix it. I think that that takes a work on so many different fronts. But a huge piece of it is, um, you know, putting your energy and your money. I mean, your meaning my like mm-hmm. <laughs> white people's energy and money and time behind efforts that are led by people of color. Um, and then figuring, you know, figuring out all of these, these kind of difficult gray areas, like, um, you know, I don't want to, I, I have some platform, I have some power, I want to be able to use that to, to amplify issues that I think people like me are not paying enough attention to. At the same time, I also need to not be speaking for yeah. people of mm-hmm. color. And, and sometimes that's, that's kind of a messy area. Mm-hmm. And guess what? Like, I got to figure that out. Like, yep, my job yep. is to figure that out. And if I fuck it up, my job is to say, wow, I really screwed that up. How am I going to do better next time? Because even me, when I speak on, on the behalf of, I say I speak with them, I'm not speaking for them because I can only speak from my perspective. And so even I am conscious of that as a black woman, that I don't speak for all black women and I would never want to. But I want to go back to when you're talking about um, um, black women not feeling a part of that. It's not just black women. I've heard that a lot from trans women, that they really need the conversation or the messaging to be really clear because they don't feel that they're included when people say women tech events. Yeah. So there there are several groups that just don't, just aren't thought about, aren't considered in these different things. And that goes back to, again, when we talk, when we talk about sexism, it's, it's like, it's, it's, uh, for a lot of black people, women that I talk to, that's a secondary issue to racism. So it's like, sexism is a big issue for white women. Racism is a bigger issue for women of color. Um, 
And that's what's killing us. That's what's causing us so much stress and so much anxiety. Um, and, and until we can have these conversations where white women who are in these movements have to understand that your message or your thing is not a priority to us. And until you can understand and get on board with what's a priority for us, we're never, there's never going to be a middle ground. And of course, you know, there are all of these issues that, that matter tremendously to black women that are explicitly at the intersection of, of sexism and racism. Mm -hmm. And those issues have to be centered in any feminist movement, right? Like that's, like that's, that's the key. I mean, if it's just about like, how do we get more white women making the same money as white men? Like that is a very hollow message. Yes, Um, exactly. And a very, and also like a, a very limited goal. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I definitely think this is something that it makes people really uncomfortable to talk about this. I mean, it makes white people really uncomfortable. It makes white women uncomfortable um, because, because of all the stuff we talked about before, like being really trained to um, be protected and be perceived as like, we're good people. Mm-hmm. And then when we start, you know, getting involved with feminist causes or whatever, it's like, oh no, 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 but I'm one of the good ones. And it's yeah. like, no, you don't, you don't get that <laughs> label. Like you don't get to just decide that because you want to be a good person that you're not doing harm. That's not yes. how that works. Yeah. 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 And again, it's not, I will, and many people will, I will go to bed. I will, pull out every resource I have. I will have a conversation. I will do whatever it takes if there's a genuine interest. If I, but what historically has happened, and I'm just going to tell my story is that inevitably when I believe that, and it just happened to me Friday, just happened to me Friday, when I believe that there's a white woman who gets it, she says something and it's like, fuck, you just screwed all of this up. You just opened your fucking mouth. And then that is just, so I had an incident on Friday, last, a week ago Friday. And they were, they asked me, um, why do I not block people on Twitter? And I said, well, because my, I have a lot of white people who follow me, particularly white men who are trying to figure this out. And if I if I block people, then that saves them from seeing the stuff that I have to put up with. They need to be exposed to this because they need to see it. So that's one reason, that's the main reason I don't block because you need to see it. And also it is your, if you're following me, you have a responsibility to protect me because I'm out here in front. And if you can't, and I tell people, I'm not trying to gather followers or allies. If you cannot make yourself uncomfortable so that I can be comfortable, I have absolutely no, no use for you. Absolutely none. And so her question was, why do I do that? And then she backed that up with, because, um, I come from a political family and we've been taught blah, blah. I was like, first of all, you don't know my strategy and, and how dare you try to school me and what I need to be doing. And then her next question was, so how do you see me? And I was like, right, right, that right there. You just screwed it up. That, that, that relationship is just gone. It's just like, I just, it's gone. And that is, that really saddened me. And I'm still processing that. Because it happens to us so often. It happens so often where you think you're, you're ahead and then someone just with a backhanded comment just erases all that. And it's, it's very unsettling. It's very unsettling. Yeah. I mean, there's so much assumption in there that she knows what's good for you or what's going to work for you. And that's always problematic, but it's especially problematic when you're talking about somebody who doesn't have the lived experiences you have. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean, I think that I think that if you want to have a strategy of blocking everybody who irritates you on social media, you should do that. Um, but that's a very, that's a super personal choice and there's risks and ramifications to any of those decisions. And I think, you know, as opposed to just like wanting to have a conversation about it and understanding sort of like, well, what made you decide to take that strategy? Yes. What's good about it? What's bad about it? What risks does that leave you open to, et cetera? Like instead of having a conversation about that and assuming that you went into it, making these choices in a way that, that, you know, you thought was going to be best for you. The assumption is like, oh, well, I know what's best for you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that that's, I mean, that's so common in tech and that's so common with white people too, right? Mm -hmm, Like to assume that, that you, you know, what's right for others and white women. I, I, I know, I know this is something that, that is true about white women 
in general. And probably almost certainly something I've been guilty of is assuming that like, because I am also a woman that I'm going to be able to speak to or have any sort of like valuable information for somebody who's had a very different life than me. Yep. Yep. (sighs) This is a great conversation. (laughs) I mean, there's, there's so much here. So, um, Thank you, Sarah, for joining the show. This has been a great conversation. Um, So much, so much to talk about. Um, Any last words? Gosh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate that you're doing this. And I am really excited to see what other kind of cause the scene guests you're going to have on because I think it's such an important topic. Well, thank you. I'm I'm excited to see. I'm interested in seeing who will come on as well. (laughs) So thank you and have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Hashtag Causing Podcast. And I'd like to thank all our current sponsors of the podcast and the Hashtag Causing Movement. Of course, we strongly encourage everyone to become an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Causing community. Just visit the website at Hashtag to sign up today. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Call the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.